0: Only at Sleep Number Stores or SleepNumber.com. This episode is sponsored by Vegan, a vegan meal home delivery service that is nutritious and delicious and makes your life easier. Based out of New Jersey, they deliver throughout the Northeast. Check out more details on their website, TryVeganMealPrep.com. And you can get 25% off your first order with the promo code LITYOGA. So go vegan. Welcome to Wednesday Q&A. You ask the questions and we answer. I am joined by my darling friend and lit expert physical therapist, Kristen Williams. Hey, Laura. Hey, honey. Uh, So let's get started right away. This is from Jill Domine. Should I be belly breathing during a yoga class, i.e. allow my belly to expand, or should I be holding in Uddiyana Bandha and breathing in my chest only? Thanks for your help. This is... I'm getting this question a lot lately. I think it's because in social media and alike, there's a lot of different information about belly breathing, not holding your core rigid. And so I'll just launch right in. This actually could be a whole podcast. So what I will say first, Jill, is that your breath is going to happen no matter what. So if you're sleeping, you're breathing, if you're just talking on the... Right, it's happening. And where the breath can help us is in our movement. It can help as a form of support. It can help, obviously, to increase our endurance as we get more oxygen into the body. And so the answer is allowing your belly to expand. That, it, the, what are you doing? Like, If you're lying in bed, if I'm lying in bed, if you're lying in shavasana, let that belly go. Expand it all you want. That's a relaxed breath. And that's also an adaptable breath, meaning we're training the breath to do various things, just like our core. If I'm sitting around on my couch, I'm not sitting there sucking my belly in. Not that I ever use that phrase anyway, because there's no demand for it. I might have a tiny bit of resting muscle tone left because I have trained my core to just have a readiness. So if I had to get up and run to the answer the door or You know, do something, I'm more ready for it. But the idea is to be adaptable with your muscular contraction, with your breathing. So there is no one particular way you're always going to breathe. You're going to use the breath to help you in your practice. So, do you want to apply Udayana Banda the whole time? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Um, And people that have practiced that way are probably overly engaging. They're overly engaging pelvic floor and their abdominals, and they're not allowing the breath to move. But are you softening the belly and letting the belly expand as you're trying to move in a variety of planes, putting demand on your body against gravity? No, you're not softening the belly. Sorry. You're not holding it rigid either. But you're having tone in your abdominal wall that actually gives your diaphragm more support. And then the diaphragm, because of its various attachments, it can pull in various ways. So if you have some tone in your abdominals as you inhale versus letting the belly expand, the rib cage will pull more laterally because of the attachments to the diaphragm and the engagement of the transverse abdominals, the deep abdominals. So you're going to get a really robust breath, which is wonderful. Now, if I was just holding my belly in on a style, I'm not going to get that. It's just going to hold, and it's bracing like the spine or something, which can certainly have its place. So there's a lot more to be said about that, but the idea is to be adaptable. So when you start reading the stuff about soften your belly to breathe, uh, that's not totally correct. You want it to, if you're lying in bed, as I said, let it soften away. That's a relaxed breath. That's signaling to your parasympathetic nervous system, time to chill out. I don't want to have a relaxed breath when I'm working on my handstand or when I'm working on a plan, you know, I don't want that. I want my breath to support me in a corseted way, but also not impede the flow of breath. Any comments more on that?
1: No, I really feel like you covered it and I would just echo your your statement of adaptability. I mean, you it's not the same breath throughout your practice, just like it's not the same breath throughout your daily activities. You will engage that core more when you need it which means you're going to have that tone, like you said, uh, and then you're going to relax it when you don't. And doing that, actually, I feel throughout the practice, whether it's intentional or not, is really beneficial. It 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 creates. I mean, it creates uh, space. It creates. Sense of need versus relax, you know, it really gives that nice feedback to the brain as to what you want your body to do. And that is what adaptability is being able to do what you need to do on the minute. So, to your point, no, I would not hold a bond the whole time, nor would I be belly breathing and relaxed. It is, there's a flow between the two depending on the need. So, you adapt to what you're placing upon your body. Yes. And I do. I agree. There's so much. Misinformation out there. People are, it's fads. And right now, the fad is no cord. And it's just, I just shake my head. Like, right. It'll come back. We've been around long enough that we've seen these things come and go. It's like, oh, here we go. This is the next, you know, it's just like fashion. Yeah, (laughs) it it totally
0: is. And it's a reductionist view. So, reductionist meaning like there's a part of that that obviously is true. There are people who are gripping who are gripping their pelvic floor, who are gripping their abdominals, who are gripping their glutes. And that's not the same as a supportive engagement. And But to just universally say everybody needs to belly breathe, no. Trust me, I've treated so many people who did not know how to actually get a really good diaphragmatic breath. Full, robust breath, 360 breath, because they all they did was push out their belly as they inhaled, and they had no awareness of those deeper abdominals and how that can change the volume, how it can change the structure, and how that volume change actually supports uh, the bones and supports you again when you've got gravitational forces, when you have more stuff going on. Nobody's going to tell like a rock climber, hey, belly breathe, relax and breathe. They're focused, they're holding themselves up with a lot of downward force placed upon them and not a lot of hold onto a wall. You need everything being summoned together so there's not like a gripping anywhere, but you're not going to be belly breathing there. It's a very focused, strong breath. Belly breathe when you want to relax. Belly breathe when you want to, like, when you're getting ready to go in shavasana. Belly breathe when you're in bed or on the couch, or when you need a moment during the day and you find yourself clenching your jaw, clenching your butt. You know how you kind of clench and it's just, I call it the tight ass syndrome. You just get, it's that anxiety and, and, and high um, level of kind of stress hormone. That's a great time to practice a relaxed breath. And the other thing is we are way too sophisticated to reduce that. If you are not using the belly breath, then you're somehow in a sympathetic nervous state. You're absolutely not. It's adaptability. There are people who are in high sympathetic nervous state and they also don't know how to breathe well. So that's a good place to start, like learning how to breathe, that the breath isn't just stuck up in your chest. But to tell that person don't use your abdominals. That's not the answer. The core, by the way, there's a there's a part of the core, and this has been shown in neuroscience, that reduces stress. So the more you tap into it, your brain and the signals that it sends to the stress response in the body gets highly, highly intelligent. So it knows like I can move on the mat and be really fired up and lots of things are happening, but I'm not stressed. I'm not like, oh shit, I better flee out of here. I'm super clear. So it's again, it's taking things and, and cherry picking them out and it just doesn't apply to everything. Um, so just know that it is more complicated than that, but it's also less complicated in a way too.
1: Yep, I agree.
0: All right. We could talk about that for a long time. Uh, Nicola Brennan asks, she loves our podcast and she was wondering what we, what we think about a four-year-old with a right foot that is very fallen inward at the ankle. I brought him to a physio because he complained about soreness in the knees. He also tires out easily compared to his little friends. Do you think it's core slash pelvic area weakness? It's hard to do targeted exercises given his age and the response was to let him develop, but I don't want to persist something that could be helped now. Great question. So
1: you want to launch in or you want me to? Yeah. No. Well, I would definitely say, you know, when you're looking at a four-year-old, in many cases, the arch isn't quite developed that that early. You see toddlers have flatter feet. Uh, I call uh, them the Fred Flintstone feet. Yeah. (laughs) They do like their little blocks. It's like little blocks. They're little blocks. (laughs) Yeah. And, um, you know... Is that what's making him slower? Or you know, I, it's really tough to say. I am going to have to side with the people of the the wait and see opinion. Um, I've seen things change in my own children as they've grown up. Where you kind of look at them and you're like, oh, as a PT, especially, I'm like, oh my god, is that going to be whatever? And then, sure enough, just give it time. They they grow out of it. I and that's not just orthopedics. It can even be. I remember when Betsy was little, she had this cough, and you know my pediatrician was like, don't treat it. They're going to be, you know, people are going to want to give her inhalers and nebulizers and give her these diagnoses. She's like, she's figuring it out. She'll, she'll fix You know, she will figure it out. And she did. And, and and it it lasted a while. So, you know, Nicola, I, I, um, I know that that's, it's definitely, because I've been there and I have watched my own children give it some time. That's my opinion. Give it time. See what happens. The body, these little bodies, they grow, they get stronger they tend to work it out on their own. What do you think, Laura?
0: I would agree with that. I mean, I would first, you know, let you know that, you know, even if it's a pelvic thing, the pelvis isn't fully developed and formed until, you know, the lumbar spine, pelvis, lumbar spine until 10, pelvis, you know, upwards into your 20s. So that isn't to say wait wait that long, but my instinct would be also to wait. But if you want to start doing some stuff, I started doing stuff with my kids just because I knew developmentally these were fun because that was my training. So A, make sure that he's not in shoes much. Now, if you're in a really cold country, that's hard to say. But my dad was an orthopedic surgeon, very into foot and knee and well, all joints. But he was like, the best thing you can do is not give your children shoes. And you know he was saying this, 40 years, 50 years ago, which is, uh, he was really ahead of his time because, you know, the, what do you do? The first thing you do, you get a little kid, you start getting him cute little uh, sneakers and shoes, can't wait. right? It's so fun. It's the worst thing to do because uh, they are, yes, they have those flat feet, but they are developing stuff. So the first thing I would say is try and get him out of shoes as much as possible so he can develop some of the intrinsic foot muscles that we'll, he will continue with with age. Doing developmental stuff, crawling, Bear crawling, like knees off the ground, regular crawling, commando crawling, belly on the ground. All those type of things are going to engage the core. And that will help uh, stabilize, give some more stability to the pelvis. Because if he is complaining about knee stuff, it could be coming from there. It could be something that he's just, again, going to grow out of. But those are some things I would recommend in the meantime. I used to set up little obstacle courses. So don't make it so much like a therapy session. You don't want him to have any idea. It's just a playtime. Um, get them in the playground or set up like I would set up an obstacle course in the house during the winter and just got got them climbing, jumping, standing on one leg, doing stuff that I knew would really be great for their proprioception, their balance. And it was fun too. I mean, that's the bottom line is it's fun. So I would just do those type of things and see if some of that helps. And I hope it does. So keep us posted. Next question is for from Taylor English. Taylor is a big lit fan. I love her. She loves our show, otherwise known as a podcast. (laughs) I love it. The question is, what are your thoughts on Buddhicon yoga or any form of yoga where they incorporate animalistic movements? I've seen a few styles that do this. And even though it may look like a fun way to move, is it fundamentally sound? So Budokan, I happen to know a little bit about. And it is developed based on a lot of these kind of primal movements, getting on... It's very similar to what we do, getting on the hands a lot. So I am all for that. I think it's amazing. I think all those type of uh, getting on the ground type movements, moving animal-wise lot are awesome. I would be... I would prepare yourself for that if you're not used to doing some of those things because some of them would be taking you into some bigger ranges of motion. Most of them are in weight-bearing, so that shouldn't be a problem. But, with any of them, I would just look at like how how much are you going into that terminal range in range of motion on either end, extension reflection, especially but yeah they they seem really fun. We do a lot of those type of things in our flows. Do you have any
1: comments on that? No, I would just echo you on the fact that i do I do love all the quadruped and um you know some of those animalistic type motions, but that in many cases, I'm basically echoing what you just said, you, you, the preparation for that does matter because um, not everybody, especially with some of those deep joint ranges of motion, you know, deep hip flexion, deep knee flexion, deep ankle dorsiflexion that is required, you'd be surprised. A lot of people don't have that. And so then you get them in a class and of course you're going to do it. Um, I do think that there is a higher rate of risk, I would say, of of injury. Unless there's great, prep, you know, preparation for it, so some of those things would almost be a peak pose in one of our classes where we would build up to it. But uh, super fun! It looks—I've never done it, but it looks like it would be super fun and, um, you know, very functional if you're prepared if for you're, it in your that own is body. The
0: big, yeah, that is a big if because I, you know, that's one thing I would say. Obviously, if people take our class, they know we really, really prepare. It's a very organized. Um, Voluming up, you know, it's not going straight into it because if, you know, some of the, I have seen some of the, those really deep stuff close to the ground, swinging the legs around. Um, and if you're not prepared for that, to Kristen's point, it could really, uh, it could be detrimental for you. sure. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Shirley Ko- Conan, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. She said, I've been practicing with you for a few years and I love lit yoga so much. Um, I've been hooked ever since I found you years ago. I've noticed that when I practice, my left hip makes clicking noises sometimes, for instance, when skipping or doing pendulum swings or other one-leg moves. But my right hip doesn't make any clicking noises. It's not painful, but I'm wondering why that happens. I've sprained both ankles in the past, so doing all of the one-legged moves has really helped me. I also notice a sometimes popping sound from my hamstring up at a sit bone. Sometimes again, only on the left side, it's not painful, just uncomfortable. Okay. So I think the big question is, it seems like swinging the leg, um, non weight in a non weight bearing way in an open chain way is creating some kind of clicking in her left hip. And also there's some kind of popping thing happening in her left hamstring.
1: Um, it sounds a lot like a snapping hip syndrome to me, particularly in that 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 hip, which is very common um, and to usually boils down to core engagement. Um, uh, it happens to me on my right side, with, and it's always open chain as well, usually for me. So if I'm, let's say, supine during the reset and I go to lower a leg, it might pop, doesn't hurt. It's just like, oh, and it's simply... You have tendons in the front of your hip that can slip over little bony prominences and make and a feel like I can hear and feel an audible pop. kind of shift. As soon as I either torque a little bit, maybe uh, turn the toe in or out, change the rotation of the hip or just engage my core better, it does not happen. I can completely control it. In a swinging, that's a little harder to do because of the momentum. So I think, I would begin for her just by maybe minimizing the range and really kind of dialing into it, you know, feeling what is happening at your pelvis when you're swinging on that side uh, versus the other. And then the hamstring, again, uh, I'm curious as to, you know, what is slipping. That's a much stronger attachment and not as much bony prominence to slip over. A lot of times things can feel like they're occurring in one area and in fact not be, or it could be. But I feel like they're related, you know. I bet she's it's the it's like the yin and the yang. She's, you know, needs to find a balance between those two, and I bet that would help. What's your gut?
0: Yeah, I mean, whenever anybody starts to say stuff like that, whether it's clicking or slipping, I just always go to pelvis organization, Mm -hmm. which is what Kristen was essentially saying. So you're doing our classes already. You're getting organized, but pay really a lot of attention to that feeling of inside the bowl of the pelvis, which would include the transverse abdominals, which includes the pelvic floor, which would include the posterior abdominal wall, which is your QL um, that attaches to the back rim of the pelvis. Really pay attention to drawing everything in toward the spine and then upward. So that's where you really probably need a little bit of an upward lift from your, like lift your pelvic organs up. And that will allow that hip to um, flex More like in a, I guess, even an open chain way, in a more organized way. So when you're swinging that leg, you don't want to feel like it's just kind of not, you know, sometimes you get that feeling it's not even attached. Actually, when you swing it, pull back with the thigh bone, like really pull it in and integrate it into the pelvis. And this, and the, the around your ischial tuberosity at the sit bone, I have a feeling that probably that's just like, over time that that side was maybe um your glute might not have been working as strongly so your hamstring might have been working more and it's not as well positioned to extend the hip and stuff you can actually get some i think fibrotic type tissue there because it's been it's it's trying it's hardest to work so like what happens is you know it's like building something and not having all the parts so you summon some other things so actually it's a, some connective tissue could Try and come in there and and harness some more strength, but that's again not the function of the hamstring. To, I mean, it does extend the hip, but it's not the primary hip extender. So sometimes you can get that kind of clicking because there's just like more fibrotic tissue if you've ever had an injury there or just a weakening there. So it it just goes back to again organize the pelvis, pull everything. I always say like pull the thigh bones in like you're. Pulling on, you know, uh, leg warmers or something to get that feeling of of organization, and um, I think that will help. And to Kristen's point, you know, start by reducing your range of motion so that you can really feel at the entire arc of the range of motion that it is still really the hip stays centered and it isn't kind of sliding around. Okay, next question. Let's see what we got. I have this is from F C Can. Hi, I have a question for your Wednesday q and I've been doing yoga with you almost daily for a year and a half. I, and since then, I've noticed that my posture has improved and also my upper back between my scapula especially tend to crack a lot when I'm walking the dogs or sitting at the table or my desk. It's not painful, but what I'm curious why this area started wanting to be cracked more after starting lit and it never has in my life before. Hmm. So between the scapula... uh. You're noticing it wants to crack or it's cracking, and it's not painful. Again, we're noisy, so I'm not like Kristen, I'm not disturbed by noises. If it's If you say your posture has improved, then sometimes what happens is your body's kind of catching up with your neuromuscular system. So sometimes our awareness of our, it, not sometimes, almost always our awareness of our posture, is the first thing we have to put into place. And then it takes a while sometimes for the body to get in. You know, People will be like, I'm thinking about it all the time, but it's not happening. It's like the body's not yet responding. So my gut would be that you are you are sorting out some of some postural imbalances that were there. And that cracking might just be your thoracic spine actually getting into more of an extension if you had been more rounded. So if you're more rounded in the shoulder's your thoracic spine is going into more what's called kyphosis. Your scapula would be rounding away from the spine in a little protraction. And when your posture improves, the scapula coming more into neutral requires that that thoracic spine we get more into extension. So the fact that you say it's not painful, but you feel like it's happening, walking the dogs or sitting, at it, I don't know, like it could just be that that's all of a sudden you, you get into a more upright position and that happens. That would be my gut. I wouldn't worry about it. I think it's your Body is sorting itself out and catching up with the you know your brain figuring it out as well.
1: I would agree. I mean, usually for people when I'm dealing with people who've either had posture or decreased range of motion, some sort of stiffness, which um, sounds to me like you're saying your posture is improving, so you are getting more mobile. That those sounds can be good. That's it's indicative that things are moving. That like to your point that didn't before. Now your scat your thoracic spine is. Uh, extending. And so you're, you're hearing things that is, that's not painful. Trust me, I am so loud. Like, and it's, and it's really, do I think it's gotten louder over the last, you know, however long I've been practicing lit? Yeah, I think so because I'm getting on my hands more. I'm, I'm putting the demand there, but there's no pain. It's just, I am more mobile. I am stronger. And that's just, this is the most mobile joint in our body it's supposed to move. And that doesn't mean that it's going to be, it's not a ball, it's, it's not a, particularly the scapula on the ribs, you know, this this isn't an articular joint where we're thinking of two, two joints that are covered in articular cartilage that's nice and smooth. You know, this is more of a, it's a it's a, a, a false joint, if you will, or it's a ligamentous joint. So there's plenty of possibilities and reasons for popping and clicking air air pockets um tendons it's the thing you know, think about the ribs they are bumpy in and of themselves so i wouldn't sweat it just kind of i think of it as like oh look i'm just extra mobile today i'm, I'm, I'm looser than and usually if it starts to be really loud i can kind of rein it in by just Hugging my scapula to my sca- to my ribs a little bit tighter. Maybe I'm getting a little loosey goosey. I have to kind of rein it in. Similar to the last person talking about the the snapping hip. Yeah. When you're mobile, you tend to be louder. When you're t- when you're stiffer, you are.
0: Yeah. So find that balance, that range. But again, if you're not having any pain and it's just a noise, yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't work, like. Like Kristen said, we are noisy. We're gonna, you know, make noises. I get up in the morning. I'm pretty balanced, but some days I'll have to be. I love when I could sort something out like that. <laughs> it's like, oh, I really needed that little, that little, you know, shift yeah. back into place. <laughs> um, oh, crunch! Yeah, because there's a lot of directions uh, the vertebral bodies can turn. They don't turn a lot, but just even a tiny little shift. Um, can get you right back kind of in alignment and and it'll often make a noise when that happens. So think of it as a self-adjustment. All right. Well, this was fun. As always, thank you so much, KB. You're
1: welcome. I love you.
0: I love you. And thank you all. And we, as always, are pulling for you.